So we continue our study through Mark. We're at Mark chapter 8. I'll read the text for us. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called to his disciples and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. This is the gospel of the Lord. So if you've been sticking with us through this Mark series, it's pretty easy to find the parallels between this account of the feeding of the 4,000 and the account of the feeding of 5,000 that we read only a couple weeks ago. Um, And and that actually provides something of a conundrum for us as Christians who believe the Bible is true. Because if you would look up the research on this chapter of the Bible, you would find the majority, not the vast majority, but a majority of scholars will say that this is a text that is actually just a copy of the previous text. Mark put it in the Bible twice, made a mistake because he's a foolish Christian and you're foolish Christians for believing that Bible that's in your hands. So what are you going to do about that? Did Mark make a mistake? I mean, these stories are eerily similar, aren't they? Many of the same, much of the same language, many of the same ideas. I want to give you, well, two big categories of reasons why I think that actually is not the correct interpretation of this text. Um, And the second of those, I want to give you three reasons. So follow me with this. First of all, just just a logical fallacy um, that, that you're believing in if you think this is a copy. Uh, It is possible for similar things to happen multiple times, right? Like, if a couple years from now, people were looking back at Cross of Life and they said, after the pandemic, Cross of Life opened for worship on July 4th, 2021, and they had about 30 people there or so, and they sang some songs and they prayed some prayers and they studied the text of the Bible from Mark chapter 7. And then on July 11th, 2021, Cross of Life gathered and they had some songs and some prayers and they studied a different text from Mark chapter eight. Therefore, those two stories are way too similar. They can't both have happened. Must have been a copy in someone's history. That's ridiculous, right? It's possible for things to happen multiple times. But I think actually the text gives us really good evidence to this. The first thing you have to notice is where Jesus is. Remember when he fed the 5,000, he was feeding them in Jewish country. Now, as he feeds the 4,000, where is he? Well, if you remember back to last week's text, he's in the Decapolis, which is Gentile area. And what has been the whole flow of this last chapter or so of the Gospel of Mark? It's been Jesus is doing for the Gentiles what he had started doing for the Jews because the message of the Gospel is supposed to go to all people. 
And so it's very easy to see what Mark is doing here. He's saying what Jesus did for the Jews, he also does for the Gentiles. But if you need a little bit more evidence than that, I think there are two pieces also right in the text that help us. Uh, One of them is a little bit weaker of an argument. One of them is a stronger argument, but I'll give you both of them. Uh, The weaker argument is the 12 baskets versus the seven baskets. So at the end um, of the feeding of the 5,000, the text tells us that there were 12 basketfuls left over. 12 is pretty universally throughout the scriptures, the number that represents the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. At the end of the feeding of 4,000, we have seven baskets. And those seven baskets, there's one of two ways you can go with that. On the one hand, you could say those seven baskets um, represent the completion of God's plan of salvation. So seven is always a number that's associated with God doing his complete work. Think of like seven days of creation, right? So God's complete work of bringing salvation to all people was being completed when he started serving the Gentiles. Reasonable argument. Another way you could look at it, though, is that when the the children of Israel were entering into what would be the promised land for them, God told them to specifically drive out seven nations. And so what God is recapitulating here is this idea that there were seven nations here and I told you to drive them out and now I'm saving them. Uh, The reason I think this is kind of a weak argument, though, is uh, numerology is something that's really easy to impose on pieces of text that aren't actually supposed to be understood symbolically. Um, If you read a book like Revelation at the end of the Bible, that book is full of symbols. The numbers are all symbolic in that book. But the Gospels, the numbers are not necessarily symbolic. So I'm not sure I'm ready to say this is the slam dunk argument for this being about Jews and Gentiles. What I do think is the slam dunk argument is the word baskets. So in the feeding of the 5,000, Mark uses a very specific Greek word to talk about a basket that was only used by the Jews, a type of basket that was only used by them. In the feeding of the 4,000, he uses a different word for a different type of basket, which would have been more common to all the people of that area. And so he very clearly is saying, this happened in Jewish country, this happened in Gentile country, they're the same story for two groups of people because Jesus is the savior of all people. Okay, so if you ever hear somebody say, well, there's two copies of the same story in the Gospel of Mark. You at least have some ammunition to fight off that argument. I think it would be easy, of course, to preach all the same things that I've, I've preached already in the feeding of the 5,000, the themes that came out from that, which is that God provides for his people, both physically and spiritually. We need to hear that again and again, but I'm going to assume that many of you were at least paying attention for the feeding of the 5,000, and if you weren't, you can go back and watch that sermon online. Um, So what I want to actually do for the balance of our time is focus on those last two verses of the text where the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him for a sign. Let me read those for you again so we can get them back in our minds. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Okay, so the Pharisees come and they say, hey Jesus, we want you to prove that you're the Messiah, this this character that you're claiming to be, and uh, we want you to prove it with a miracle. Now on the surface, I think many of us can see just the ridiculousness of this question, right? Because what has Jesus just done? He has just fed 4,000 people in Gentile country and only a couple weeks before this fed 5,000 people in Jewish country. Like the evidence is there. This guy is God. But what I think is unfortunate is that what the Pharisees are doing is all too common, not just in Jesus' day, but also in our day. 
that when presented with evidence for the Bible's truth or Jesus being the son of God or the resurrection being a true historical fact, many people will ignore the evidence. Say, I I don't want to hear it or I need a specific type of evidence. They won't accept the evidence that has been provided by the scriptures. And so what what I want to do today is I want to do really three things in talking about evidence for who Jesus is and and what he claims to be. Um, First, I want to talk about what evidence there actually is for the truth of Christianity and the message that Jesus is the son of God who died for your sins and rose again to give you eternal life. Then I want to talk about why people don't believe it. I think it's important for us to to examine that because um, I think every one of us, I mean, we could do a show of hands. Every one of us has somebody in our life who is not willing to interact with the evidence. So we're going to talk about why that happens. And then third, I want to talk about what are we going to do about it, okay? So first, let's talk about um, the evidence that we actually have for Christianity. Now, um, this is certainly not an exhaustive list of, uh, of uh, evidences for Christianity, and I'm not going to go into detail with them because we would be here for hours. But what I'm going to do is give you sort of an intro to five different schools of evidence that there are for the truth of Christianity. And what I want you to do is I want you to like mentally circle one of these in your brain. And when you go home, either I want you to research it yourself and learn a little bit more about it if it sounds interesting to you, or you can just ask me and I will give you stuff to read or to watch or to listen to that will help you get more equipped with this argument so that when somebody comes to you and says, there's no evidence for the Bible or no evidence for Jesus, you can say, well, I got this. Okay. So the first of those evidences is what is called classical apologetics. Um, Classical apologetics is essentially taking cosmology. It's looking at the world around us and saying, this world attests to the truth of a personal, benevolent, powerful creator God. So an example of this would be like what Paul does in Romans 1, where he says, um, you can look at the creation and you can see that there is a creator. This is things like the fine-tuning argument of the universe, that there are literally hundreds of variables in the universe and how it works, that if they were even like 1% off, life would not be able to exist on this planet. This also includes things like teleological arguments, which is basically the idea that everything has a cause, and so there eventually, as you trace back causes, has to be what... um, I think it's Augustine called the unmoved mover, like the foundation of all those things, the powerful being who started all the causes that lead to where we are today. A second approach would be historical apologetics. Historical apologetics is good for people if they like to claim that they love to follow science um, because historical science would lead to the conclusion that the most probable explanation of what happened 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem is that Jesus rose from the dead. And in fact, you don't need to use the Bible to prove that. Um, the Bible, of course, will fill in a whole bunch of like, gaps in the story for you. But if you would just use secular historical evidence, you would have to come to the conclusion that the most probable explanation is that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, if you've just decided that the resurrection of the dead is absolutely impossible, no evidence is going to help you here. But if you have at least have the possibility in your mind that that could happen, the evidence leads to that. Gary Habermas is a famous historian who did this. He called it the minimal facts argument. He took eight facts that are agreed upon by over 90% of scholars. So even non-Christian scholars, he took those eight facts and he says, these eight facts lead to the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. And there's really no other explanation that's been offered that could possibly account for all of these facts. 
Third example is presuppositional apologetics. Now, presuppositional apologetics, some people call it different things, but the basic idea is that as you live your life, you exist with a certain set of presuppositions about how the world works, and those are always based on there being a God, even if you won't acknowledge him. So, for example, the the feeling that there should be justice in the world. Why do you feel that there should be justice? Well, if you don't have a God, there's really no reason for you to have justice. It's survival of the fittest. That's the end of it. The people who are weak, they die off. The people who are strong, they keep living. But we all have this sense that there should be justice in the world. Well, where does justice come from? Justice comes from an absolute moral standard, which must come from something that is outside of our creation. This is probably the apologetic approach you see me do the most often in sermons, where I'll say, this is what you all believe, but you have no basis for it without God. Okay? A fourth would be cumulative case. This is a little bit more philosophical, but um, what philosophers will do is they'll say the best answer for an event or uh, a philosophy is the answer that explains the most questions in the simplest way. It explains the most questions in the simplest way, answers the most questions. So an example of this would be like, if you came to a town and every house in the town was burned to the ground, and one person came up to you and said, it's a case of serial arson, and another person said, no, there are forest fires in the area and they burned down all the house. Well, who, who are you going to believe? Well, the forest fire explanation, because it's far more simple and it answers more questions than some guy who's going and lighting every single house on fire, right? The same thing is true with Christianity. Cumulative case uh, apologetics is the idea that the, the, um, the background of a, a benevolent, personal, powerful God who sends his son into the world to die for sins, to forgive them without any works being paid back to him, answers well, I would say it answers every philosophical question with one event. And so there's obviously a lot of detail to that, but that's the basic premise of it. The last one then is relational apologetics. And this would be like looking inside yourself to realize that there are some things that are true about you that don't make sense without a God. So Paul would say, for example, the fact that you have a conscience, that you have a sense that there are things that are right and wrong, and that every single person has this sense, betrays the fact that you were created by somebody who cares whether you do right or wrong. If you're just an accident of history of molecular biology, then you shouldn't really care what's right or wrong universally, but you do. Or for example, the fact that you feel the need for love. Why do you feel like you need to be loved? I mean, you might want to be respected or admired so that people won't kill you, but why do we all feel this deep-seated need for love? Well, it's because we were created by a relational God, created us for love and to love. And so this is certainly not all the evidence, but like I said, circle one of these in your brain and say, I want to I dig a little bit deeper into that so that you can see some of this evidence. But the issue, of course, and you can see it right in the text, is that the Pharisees don't want the evidence. <laughs> the, the reasons that people don't believe, I think a lot of people can, can make, uh, make big, long lists of why, that people, why people don't believe, but I think you can really boil it down to, um, to like two categories of reasons why people don't believe. Um, I think on the one hand, there are some people who genuinely just don't have enough evidence. Maybe you've met some of these people. Um, they'll say like, look, this is what I saw. That, you know, that Christian leader, he did that terrible thing to those women. And, and that just doesn't make sense to me. I can't be cool with that. But if you could show me that that's not what the Bible teaches, that the Bible's not okay with that, maybe I'd be cool with it. Or someone might say, you know what, I've read a lot of scientific things, watched some scientists talk about evolution, and it seems pretty compelling to me, but I'm open to another argument about how the world came into existence. 
Like those people, they need reasons. They need evidence. But I think that's the vast minority of people. I think the majority of people fit into a second category that I'm going to call causes. Um, the cause idea is that it's not about the evidence for you. It's about something that's, that's personal. And I want to break those causes into three sort of categories, three causes that people have that they'll refuse to look at evidence. Um, the first of those is that they had some sort of traumatic experience. So this is like, you know, my, my mom was in a church and she, you know, was hurt by the priest or whatever. And therefore, she, you know, she was really sad about this. And therefore, I think all Christians are terrible. Or, I, you know, I had a Christian friend who betrayed me. Therefore, all Christians are terrible. Or I see these things that are happening, you know, with priests abusing little children and all. The, and I'm like, that's, you know, I can't, I can't get on board with that. A second category of, of reasons that people will not accept evidence is that they don't want to give up the way that they're living. So they intrinsically have this idea that a Christian lives differently than the rest of the world. And so they don't want to give up spending their money the way that they spend it or spending their time the way that they spend it or using their body the way that they use it. And so they say, you know what, I'm not even going to interact with the evidence because I know that as soon as I interact with it, I might have to believe it. A third category, and I think this is the most interesting of them, is that people don't know what Christianity actually offers. I think this is increasingly becoming a problem. If you were to ask the average non-Christian, what does Christianity offer? They would probably say something like, you know, a better way to live so that you can be a better person. But that's not Christianity. Like Christianity is God steps into your place, takes all the punishment that you deserve, takes your death so that when you die, you don't actually stop existing. You continue to live in a place that's absolutely perfect. And by the way, it's not like any of the Hallmark cards you've seen. It's not clouds and harps and loincloths and singing in church services forever. It's a world, a new heavens and a new earth, a place where society exists and culture exists and music and great food and friendships and good work and art and all the things you love about this world, but perfected and given to you forever, where everyone loves everyone perfectly. There's no conflict. There's no disappointment. There's no frustration. There's no back pain. All of it is gone. That's what Christianity offers. And I don't think people know that. What if they did? See, the problem is they have these causes in their mind and they say, you know what? I'm not into a religion that gives me that. I'm not into a religion where people act like that. I don't really want to be in a religion where I have to change the way that I live. If I can read your minds a little bit right now, I bet you you're thinking about somebody right now who thinks this way. Somebody in your life who won't take the evidence because there's something else going on deeper inside. So what are we going to do about it? Well, I think each of these three causes has a different way to approach uh, that person. The first one, a traumatic experience. Um, I was just listening to a guy who researches uh, persecution of religious and, and political groups. So basically, he researches who people dislike in the world. Um, his, his research revealed that Christians are the most disliked demographic in North America. More than any other religious demographic, more than any other political demographic, more than any other ethnic demographic, more than any other age demographic, socioeconomic demographic, Christians are the most disliked. But what he also found is that the way that those Christians are disliked is almost always irrational. 
what he meant was that what people will cite as their reasons for disliking Christians is not actually in line with what the Bible teaches. So they'll say, you know what, I'm whatever, I'm, I'm gay, and therefore I think Christians will hate me. Well, maybe some Christians do, but the Bible doesn't. True Christianity doesn't. Or people might say, you know what, I've got this kind of lifestyle, I look this way. If I would walk into a church, everyone would look at me side-eyed. Maybe some would, but that's not what the Bible teaches. And so if a person has a traumatic experience where like a Christian or a church really wronged them, what do they need? They need you to show them that not all Christians are like that. They need you to be in their life enough so that when they start thinking about Christians, they say, yeah, I don't really like Christians, but I like that Christian. They must not all be bad. They need to see that Christians aren't all the same. That there are some who actually do take God's word seriously. What about the second of these? They don't want to give up the way that they're living. These people need you to be in their life and, showing, and show them that a distinctly Christian life is attractive. So they, they, need you to, they need to be shown that like loving your spouse and not talking about them negatively behind their back, that thinking first about what other people want rather than what you want, spending your money in a way that's generous to other people, that's actually a joyful way to live. Now that can't be accomplished, of course, if you're not living a distinctly Christian life, but that's what those people need. They need to see that if I were to leave the way that I'm living, I would actually go to something that's pretty attractive. What about this last category? They don't actually know what Christianity offers. I think here's your approach. You say to them, you know what? I realize you don't think any of this is true. But can I just for a second let you know what Christianity really offers? And then you tell them all those things that I said. And at the end of it, then you say this, you say, I know you don't believe that that's true, but don't you want it to be true? Don't you wish it was true? And unless they're a crazy person, they're going to say, yeah, I wish it was true. I don't think it's true, but I wish it was. And that's your chance to say, can I show you that I think there's a reasonable argument for it actually being true? And you have that chance to share those reasons. And so what I want every one of us to do is to think for a second, okay, I have somebody in my mind, somebody in my life, maybe multiple people who fit into one or multiple of these categories. How am I going to approach them the next time I talk about my faith with them? One last thing this text teaches us. Remember that that these guys who were asking Jesus for this sign, this evidence, they were hyper-religious people. Now, they weren't Christians, right? They had a, a view of religion that was different from true gospel-centered Christianity. And I think that's important for us to remember uh, because the world around us is full of religion and full of highly religious people. Even if you wouldn't catch them in the church on Sunday or the synagogue on Sabbath or in the mosque or in the temple, there are highly religious people around us. I mean, I think you can look at just some of the ideologies that have gone around the world in the last year and a half. Things like how people approach COVID and vaccines, or how they approach racism, or how they approach environmentalism, or how they approach politics in general. It's all very religious. 
right? It has sacred texts, it has prophets, it has worship days, it has seasons of the year where you're supposed to acknowledge that this is happening. It has a utopia or a heaven, if you want to call it that. It has an evangelism program. It has sins that you need to repent of. All of it is very religious, which should lead us to think, okay, if if a person is very religious, even if they claim not to be religious, that means I need to deconvert them from what they believe already in order to help them see what is true. And that's where asking questions about these things. What was it like? What do you really think? What do you believe? Can I share this with you? Those, those sorts of questions are going to disarm that person to allow you to have that chance to speak to them truthfully. But then maybe one last piece to this. Those people were really religious. And so are you if you're sitting in this room. Which means that the things that we have just been talking about for the last 20 minutes or so, about how to speak to people out there, I think maybe they need to be turned around and pointed right at us. I don't think anybody in this room needs more reasons. You know what the Bible says. You know what Christ calls us to. I think very often our problem, even as those of us who would call ourselves Christians have, is we have these causes, these underlying causes that don't allow us to believe some things that Jesus say, says. Maybe it's a, an experience that we had. You know, I, I was generous with my, with my money one time and you know, I got taken advantage of. I know what Christ says about giving to other people who are in need or to my church, but I'm not going to go there again. Or maybe I tried to share my faith one time, but you know what? That person yelled at me and I don't want to go through that again. I know what Jesus says about sharing the gospel with all people, but that was too hard. Or maybe it's that we don't want to give up something. You know, I know what the Bible says about gathering together with other Christians, but I'm, I'm frankly pretty comfortable with my evenings to myself. I know what the Bible says about every Sunday in worship, but you know, sometimes I like to be comfortable at home. I know the Bible says that, that the Lord's Supper is a necessary piece of my faith that I ought to be doing regularly, but you know what? I'd rather get the extra half an hour of sleep. I know what the Bible says about how I'm supposed to use my body, but honestly, I don't feel too bad when I watch porn. I know what the Bible says about how I'm supposed to raise my kids, in the teaching and admonition of the Lord, but frankly, that's hard. And I'd rather scroll on my phone. Or maybe it's that last category. We intellectually know what the hope of the Christian faith is, but we haven't made it a functional principle of our life. Like, how would you live if you knew you would never lose anything that absolutely mattered to you? How would you live if you knew that all of the wealth and riches of God is waiting for you in heaven forever? How would you live if you knew that you were immortal right now and that God would not let you die until he was absolutely ready to let you die? How would you live if you knew that there was no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that you could live completely freely every day of your life? I think it's easy for us to think first about how can we convert all those people out there? But the truth is it's got to start right here. We've got to convert our own hearts. And so how do you do that? 
you look back at the text. What the text beautifully does for us here is it shows us that Jesus gave a sign before anyone was asking for a sign. In other words, Jesus continues to generously give to you before you even ask. He generally, generously gives to you before you repent, before you notice your sin, before you realize you're messed up. In fact, before you walked into this room today and heard any of the words that I just said, Christ had already given you the sign that it is finished. You are paid for. You are immortal now. And nothing can change that. And so do what those people who were fed, those 4,000 Gentiles did. Do you remember this right at the beginning of the text? Jesus said that he has compassion on them for they've been with him three days and have had nothing to eat. Saturate yourself in Jesus' teaching. Sacrifice things to hear Jesus' teaching. Put things that you would rather have aside for a moment so that you can hear Jesus' teaching. And as Jesus continues to speak to you, your heart will be converted ever more to love him and serve him and serve your neighbor more. So what I'm going to do in just a couple minutes here is I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit for all of us to come into all of our lives and help us take whatever that next step is in your life. Maybe for you, that next step is I'm going to make Sunday morning a priority every week. Maybe that next step is I'm going to start reading the Bible with my kids around the dinner table. Maybe that next step is I'm going to get help for my addiction to pornography. Maybe that means I'm going to take some of my budget and I'm going to cut it off and put it into a generosity fund for my neighbors. Maybe it means I'm going to actually have that conversation with that person that I've been thinking really needs to hear about Jesus. Whatever it is, the Holy Spirit's going to give you the power to do that and we're going to pray for it, okay? Let's go to God now. God, thank you for giving us the gospel, the promises that you have given us so that we can be saved and know where our future lies. But now we need your power. Holy Spirit, I ask that you come on all the people in this room and give them the strength to do whatever it is that you have called them to do in their life right now. Lord, we have wounds from previous uh, occasions in our life. We have things that we don't want to give up. We forget what you promised us in the gospel overcome those things in the way that only you can so that this community can be first a community of repentance and compassion for one another, but then boldness in proclaiming the gospel, knowing the evidence that you've given us for the truth of the gospel so that we can share it with other people. We ask all those things in your name. Amen.